Part 2. Across That Foamy Deep Chapter 13 Finn staggered through a gray world of leaf-barren trees, each step carrying her farther from the riven life behind. She kept near the roads and hid in the hollows, or behind trees when a rider or wagon passed. Each time she heard someone approach, she expected soldiers, but none ever appeared. Night came on and still she walked, by moonlight, shivering in the damp and cold. When the moon passed out of the sky, she settled down onto a stone jutting out of the hillside and attempted to sleep, but couldn't. She opened the fiddle case and lifted the instrument to her neck. She ached to play, but her shaking hands wouldn't allow it. She wanted to find a way, like Bartimaeus, to turn pain into beauty, but she scarcely believed the world held any beauty at all, much less that she could create it or add to it. She laid the fiddle back in its velvet cradle, latched the case, and soon dawn began to warm the sky. She climbed to her feet and crested the hill to look down on the waking city of Savannah. She intended to lose herself there, to drown her old life, to forget. If there were any beauty left for her, she would find it in forgetting. With the lightning of the horizon came sounds on the breeze, first of knockers up, rapping with their poles and calling the city to life, then of bells and wagons on cobblestone and roosters crowing. The city awoke by slow degrees as she descended from the hills, and when she reached the first cobbled streets, it had come fully awake. But all the wonder it stirred when last she saw it was gone. Now the city was a nightmare of suspecting eyes and threatening glances, as if she wore her crimes upon her like a brand. The sight of soldiers induced beads of sweat to her face, no matter how often she told herself they could not know. In her ragged clothes, she drew distasteful stares from tidier, more properly dressed folk, and she felt a degree of relief when she emerged at last from the town proper and on to the clamoring waterfront. The streets bustled with commerce. Sailors sang cadence as they muscled capstans and loaded their holds. Wagons and horses weaved and darted up and down the streets like ants on a broken mound. Vendors hawked everything from fruits to firearms, and laborers loaded and unloaded goods from the world across. Men of all colors, smells, and tongues busied themselves around her. Black men with downcast eyes and broad backs, hairy white men with taut round bellies, tanned dark by the sun, long-coated gentlemen with monocled eyes and stuffy airs. Shirtless sailors called out orders from toothless mouths and hefted crates with their sinewy, tattooed arms. The only things most of them seemed to have in common were a lack of couth and a precise command of vulgarity. Hundreds of ships clogged the harbor. Their thousand masts jutted into the sky like the withered trees of a dead forest. Great merchant vessels lined the piers, and men heaved crates, pallets, and sacks filled with sundry exotics out of every hold. Other ships lay at anchor in the harbor and ferried goods to shore by smaller vessels and barges. The smells of salt, fish, and sweat ripened the air. This was the life Bartimaeus had known when he was young. Finn devoured it. She was drawn to it, as if among the crates of mysterious cargo, she might reclaim his company from the stuffy closet of grief. Finn set down the fiddle case next to a lamppost and sat on it to observe the comings and goings around her. At first everything appeared chaotic, but gradually she began to see patterns emerge from the madness. Spectacled clerks counted goods and scurried between the dock and their shipping companies to deliver accountings of what was loaded or unloaded. Sailors delivered their goods to warehouses as directed by the proper dockmasters, then most visited the shipping offices for pay. 
Couriers delivered mail in marked satchels. Captains argued over and paid docking fees, and money clerks received them and scrawled the collections down. Pickpockets strolled casually through the crowd, bumping into people and begging pardon with sly grins. For hours she watched and tried to imagine her own place out among them all. When night came, she ducked beneath the dock. Ragged forms lurked in the darkness. Men gaunt as the dead and clothed in sackcloth huddled in shadows and stared at her with empty, inhuman eyes. Some cried out to her for food or money, but most simply studied her as she passed and muttered to themselves in madness. Rats, dogs, and other unidentifiable creatures scurried over her feet and between her legs as she stumbled through the black forest of barnacle-encrusted pylons beneath the quay. Here and there refuse chutes descended from the pier above and vomited their waste into piles of decay. Two dogs circled each other, snapping and biting, as they vied for some rotten pound of meat. At length, she curled up into a depression in the filth and tried to sleep, but did little. She wondered if Peter were looking for her. Surely he would be. More than anything, she wanted to open her eyes and see him standing over her, bending to take her up and to hold her and bear her home. He didn't come, though, and she couldn't even cry for him. Her tears were gone, swallowed up by the numbness of despair. When sleep did come, it was haunted by dreams of murder, and morning came without renewal. For a week, Finn lived the unlife of a vagrant. Her only food was what she scavenged in alleys or refuse piles. Nights beneath the dock gave her solitude, but offered no rest. She prayed for death, if only to suffer no more of life, but that too was withheld her. Without work, she had no money, and without money, no food, no board, nothing. In a world without family, friend, or love, only engagement to the beast of commerce sustains life. She needed to find purpose again. She needed to find work. On a moonless night, she stepped out of her clothes and washed in the briny filth of the port. She scrubbed herself and her clothing with handfuls of sand, and when the morning came, she went up to the streets. She looked far from what the sisters would consider presentable. Her pants were torn at the knees and too short to cover the tops of her tattered leather work boots. Her shirt, once white, was stained and mottled brown and hanging open at the left shoulder. But as she considered her homely state, she noted that she bore a distinct similarity to many of the sailors trafficking the streets. For once in her life, she fit in. Work was less likely to find her than she was to find it, she reasoned, so she worked up her not inconsiderable gumption and went forth. She'd forgotten what day it was, and the first person she spoke to her told her it was a Tuesday. Sir, I'm looking for work she said to a friendly-looking sailor walking off the pier. "'What you asking me for?' he said. "'Check at the shipping office if I was you.' That made sense, she supposed. The waterfront street was a solid line of shipping offices as far as she could see in either direction. She walked the length of the street, looking at each door and into each window, hoping to find some sign of welcome or notice of help wanted, but found none. She picked the door of a building that looked less seedy than its neighbors and cautiously stepped inside. The room was full of crates and barrels, and a group of businessmen huddled around a table in its center. When she entered the room, they ceased their talking and raised their heads to look at her. Her voice caught in her throat, and for perhaps the first time in her life, she couldn't think of what she wanted to say. In embarrassment, she retreated out the door as the men laughed at her and turned back to their discussion. Back on the street, of course, she remembered precisely why she'd gone in, but decided against venturing back for another try. She walked on to the next building and knocked on the door. When no one answered, she tugged at the handle and found it locked. She moved on to another building, one with an open door, and went in. 
An old man with white-filmed eyes lounged back in his chair behind a desk and addressed her general direction. "'Mr. Sotheby, your wife, sir. She has been three times to see you this morning and has gone away in a state, I'm afraid.' Finn was the only other person in the room. "'Um, I'm sorry. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. Pardon me.' She hurried back out the door as the man called after her. "'Mr. Sotheby! Mr. Sotheby! What shall I tell your wife?' The next three doors were locked. The fourth opened below a shingle that read Smithers and Jouncey Shipping Company. Inside, a plump clerk scribbled away at some unknown business behind a desk topped with manifest documents. Stacks of paper and what appeared to be boxes of stacks of paper filled the room. Dates and names adorned the side of each box, and by a quick glance around, she noticed that they had been collecting for quite some years indeed. She approached the desk and opened her mouth to speak. Uh, excuse me, the man promptly interrupted her without looking up from his scribbling. May I help you? I'm looking for work, and, uh... The man tilted his head up slightly as she spoke and peered at her over his glasses before cutting her off. No work. Well, perhaps you could refer me to somewhere... If you're looking for a contract aboard a ship, I'm afraid you are far out of luck. You haven't the constitution or muscle for the work, and I doubt from the look of you that you've ever set foot on a ship in your miserable, scrawny life. No work. He stared at her over his glasses and flicked his eyes toward the door. But... No... Work. Finn wrinkled her forehead at him and removed herself back out onto the street. She came to an abrupt stop as she collided with someone. The someone was a man now lying on the ground, sputtering curses and smelling of rum. He was skinny, pale, toothless, and very nearly pickled in alcohol. Ah! He groaned as he climbed his way to his feet. Finn tried to beg pardon. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't see you. The man started and spun once around, looking for the source of her voice and then had to contend with a bit of wobbling before he managed to focus on Finn. "'What in the bloody drink are you think you're doing?' he sputtered in a grammar only the drunken can master. "'I was just coming out of the building and—' "'You scrawny rat! You don't know you're messing about!' He made a show of putting up his fists and nearly succeeded in throwing himself back to the ground. He'd have done just that had not a monstrous hand clamped him around the neck just as he was about to fall. A dark, hairy man the size and demeanor of a bear had come to his rescue, but didn't look any too pleased about it. Tommy, you drunken dog, leave off the locals and get to the snake. We haul anchor in the hour and you've got work to sober up to, he growled at the skinny drunk. Let off me, Jack. His kid tried to rob me, he did. I'm about to shoot him me rubber knockers. Jack growled under his breath, picked him up by the scruff of his neck, and threw him over his shoulder. He marched off down the street with Tommy kicking and hollering to be let go. Finn was amused by the affair until she saw Tommy had got himself free of his captivity and was running full gait back toward her. He barreled down the street yelling a cacophony of curses and vulgarities at her. Finn made up her mind that she'd heard and seen quite enough. She set her case down and stepped to the side. In his drunken state, Tommy forgot to slow down as he approached his target, and she threw her fist into the side of his face as he stumbled past. That ended the commotion. Tommy crumpled onto the cobblestones and lay silent. Robber indeed, Finn muttered as he began to snore. She turned around to find a hulking obstacle barring her way. She had to crane her neck and back up a step in order to see his face. It was the man Tommy had called Jack, and he didn't look any too pleased with her either. Oh, you just ruined the most worthless sailor I ever had the displeasure to bark an order to. I ought to box your ears and throw you in the brack. His face was so ugly it made Finn wince to look at it and the way he had it scrunched up in anger didn't help the condition. His eyes were set too far apart, 
such that Finn thought he must see all of what was happening on either side of him, as well as in front, and his mangled pudgy nose was so covered with sun-baked skin that whenever he moved his head too quickly, little flakes of it floated off like snow. Thankfully, his beard covered the remainder of his unfortunate face. He looked to have three teeth, more or less, and the rest of his appearance could be summed up in two words, large and hairy. Everything about him was overbig, and covered in short, curly black hair. Hands, fingers, neck, ears, every visible patch of skin seemed to be sprouting. He worked his face around for a moment while he nudged Tommy with his foot. Then he looked at Finn again, and she suppressed the inclination to turn and run. You know what a press gang is, kid? Finn shook her head. It's me. The monstrous man chuckled under his breath, a sound that navigated its way through the caverns of his chest and came out like a muted rumble. You're replacing Tommy. He picked Finn up and threw her over his shoulder. Finn gave a yelp and hollered to be unhanded. Quiet down, kid, before I have to gag you, Jack barked. Mister, if you want me to work for you, I can walk on my own. Work is just what I was looking for. Jack put her down and considered her. Well, you're a mite scrawny, but willin' work scrawny's better than forced work fat, I always say. Was you robbin' Tommy? he asked. No, sir. Well, you are now, he slapped her on the back and laughed like a thunderclap. Finn just stared at him. Oh, stealing his job. Robbing him his birth on the snake? Ah, never mind. He waved his hands at her. What's your name? Finn Button? He stuck out an enormous right hand. Jack Wagon. Finn put her tiny hand in his and he shook it around. Enough jabbering. There's troubles with the locals tonight and we needs to get seaward in the hour. He slapped Finn on the back, spinning her around, and walked off down the street. Finn had to jog to keep up with him. Mr. Wagon, Finn called after him, but he ignored her. Mr. Wagon, what, what sort of trouble? Jack inclined his head toward her, but didn't speak. He pivoted on the toe of his boot and turned onto a pier. Finn scrambled to keep up. He stopped in front of a gangplank, running out to the deck of a black and tan ship. Its three masts speared high into the sky, and gulls circled above. That's the rattlesnake. He hooked his thumb over his shoulder at the ship. Let's go, scrawny. Finn took a deep breath and trotted across the plank. Jack followed after with a single bound and hollered orders and curses down into a hatch. His yelling caused quite a commotion, and in seconds muttering sailors popped out onto the deck and scurried about the ship, untying ropes, climbing the rigging, and doing all manner of shipboard work. Where's Tommy? yelled a voice down from the tops. Ruined in the gutter he is, damn his blood, shouted Jack up at the voice. This bony lad laid him out with a single whop. Jack slapped a hand on Finn's back, and all the sailors on deck stopped what they were doing and turned to look at her. Finn opened her mouth to inform Jack that she was no lad, but stopped and thought better of it. Every man on deck had his eyes trained her way, yet it hadn't occurred to a one of them that she was anything other than what Jack had just named her. She gulped once, snapped her mouth shut, and slouched her shoulders down so her chest was less likely to give away what her clothing and boyish nature conveniently hid. Say hello to your new mate. We're rid of Tommy once and for good. Jack pointed a meaty finger at Finn. Now get yourself to climbing, Mr. Button. Nut needs help aloft with the lines and sail. Finn looked up. Some forty feet above her, a man in the rigging of the mainmast waved down. She waved back and clambered up into the ropes as if she was born to it. When she reached the top, the man looked at her in confusion. Never heard of a name like Button. He looked at her sideways and narrowed one eye. Call me Finn. Can't say as I ever heard a name like Nut before, either, 
she said, grinning at him. Tommy Nuttle. Already got a Tommy on the snake, though. So as they call me Nut. He frowned as he spoke of himself and talked to beat slower than most folk. Well, there's no Tommy anymore, though. Mr. Wagon said I'm replacing him. Nut's frown deepened. So does that mean I call you Tommy now? Finn asked. Nut scratched his head and rolled his eyes in thought. I'm Nut, he declared. He nodded and looked at her to make sure she understood. Grab hold of that rope over there. Don't know why we got to get to see a day early, but I don't cross Jack. No, sir. Finn followed Nut's lead closely as he showed her how to ready the topsails, and after a few minutes they had the work done and climbed back down to the deck. The ship was unmoored and floating out into the harbor. Jack stomped about the deck bellowing orders as he pointed toward work and kicked the nearest sailors in the proper direction. Nut tapped Finn on the shoulder and motioned her to follow him. He led her to a spot far aft from where Jack's attention was focused. So Jack's the captain? Finn asked. Glad you asked me and not him. He'd belt you in the head for saying it. Jack's first mate. He likes ordering and stomping, but he ain't one for stiff net work like captaining. Nut frowned and cast a nervous glance around. Don't think Jack and the captain likes each other none. So who's the captain? Finn asked. Tiberius Creech, said Nut in a whisper. He looked around again and checked over his shoulder, as if afraid he was being watched. I don't think the captain likes me none, neither. Without warning, the rumble of distant cannon fire split the air. Finn flinched at the sound, and Nut dove to the deck and covered his head with his hands. The rest of the crew gathered along the rail to see what was going on. To the north, where the Savannah River emptied its waters into the ocean, three British frigates had arrayed themselves across its mouth. They were throwing a volley of cannon shot at what looked to Finn like a cloud of fire coming downstream. It took a moment for her to realize that the blaze was a ship. Boom! Another volley erupted from the British cannons, and bits of fiery debris exploded from the blazing ship where the guns found their mark. Collision was imminent. Two of the British vessels came around and fled eastward. The third wasn't quick enough. The flaming ship plowed into her amidships, and Finn heard the cracking and splintering of the hull. As the two ships sank into the estuary, thick pillars of smoke rose to mark their graves, and Finn lost sight of the calamity as the rattlesnake rounded the shoulder of South Carolina. That, gentlemen, is why we're a sea today and not tomorrow, shouted Jack across the deck. Got word midday about British plans to seize supply boats upriver. Talk at the tavern said the local militia aimed to put a stop to it. Bad news to say in port when the locals get riled. We head for Philadelphia to trade what we got. And the captain claims he's got business with some politician. Now set watch above and get below before I find a swab to keep you company. So began Finn's life on the sea. Nut showed her to the berthing and found her a spot to swing a hammock next to his. She had nothing to call her own except the black fiddle case she carried away from a bloody kitchen in a world shrinking behind her. As the wind blew her north aboard the rattlesnake, she felt the pain of all that had happened slipping away. This was the sea. This was what Bartimaeus had loved. She wanted to forget everything life had given her up until this moment, save two things, Bartimaeus and Peter. Peter would wait for her. She'd come back. She'd come back for him once she'd seen a bit of the world and the war. Once the British were gone, she could return home safely. He would wait. She spent little worry over the notion that she was going to have to hide the fact that she was a woman. She hadn't tried to deceive anyone, but her breeches, short tangled hair, dirty face, and boyish chest 
had taken care of it for her. No one seemed to have thought twice about her. She considered for a moment whether she ought to be offended, but quickly brushed the thought aside. The only person she had ever cared to look female for was Peter, and it was just as well she'd keep it that way. The sail north to Philadelphia was a four-day venture, and it proved four of the longest days Finn had ever known. She soon learned that the rattlesnake was no vacation from chores and duty. To the contrary, there were more of both than ever, and as the newest crew member, she was assigned all the least desirable tasks, swabbing decks, pumping the bilge, polishing brass, and working the hardest, which is to say the latest and most boring, watches. Finn didn't complain, though. She loved it. Loved the purpose in it, the challenge of it. It was hard work, man's work, as Sister Hilda would say, and while the other men aboard looked forward to drinking and investigating the local women folk when they hit shore, Finn could think only of sleep and rest. Nut was her companion in nearly every chore and duty. Many of the crew mocked his awkward speech and thought him slow in the head, but Finn took a liking to him right away. Though he was clearly older than her by years, he worked long and steady and never spoke ill of anyone. She came to think that he looked like a twig. His limbs were overly long and skinny, and where they jointed together they bulged like knots. His sun-darkened skin and scars made him the color of fallen leaves, and she worried that if he fell asleep in the woods he might never be found. Finn took to his gentle way and enjoyed his companionship. Nut seemed more than happy to have company that didn't push him around. Few of the rest of the crew would afford her any attention or entertain any of her questions. She recognized the pattern, though. It was the same at the orphanage. She'd seen time and again that when new orphans arrived, they'd have to endure a period of shunned isolation until they achieved some untold quality that made them one of the crowd. At least Nut eased her transition. He also provided Finn with a hearty education on shipboard life. He showed her to the galley for meals and explained the meanings of the many various bells, whistles, and flags. He patiently drilled her on the tying of knots and told her when to report for watch duty and when to try to sleep, something that was scarce as the ship was badly undermanned. The snake used to have eighty crew, he said, but only got forty now. Well, why not more? Finn asked. Some people don't like the captain none, Nut shrugged. She pieced together from conversations that the rattlesnake had been in Charleston not long ago, loading tobacco bound for trade in England, when the captain changed plans and sailed for Savannah with a half-empty hold and no explanation. They'd been in Savannah ever since, and the captain hadn't been seen at all until the day Finn came aboard. There were rumors of every sort, that the captain had a mistress, that he ran afoul of the law in Charleston and needed a quick out, that he was secretly spying for the Continental Congress. Theories haunted any space where two sailors spoke, but by far the most popular was simple madness. Most of the crew thought him insane. Finn didn't know much about seaborne commerce or the basic activities of captains, but it took little time for the rumors in the air to color her perception of him. Jack, on the other hand, while not the captain of the rattlesnake, was certainly the one that kept it running. He seemed never to rest. At all hours of the day and night he barked orders and stomped across the deck, inspecting lines, knots, rigging, brasswork, and anything else he found that needed daily maintenance to keep the ship running fleet and sure. Though he was a harsh master, the crew loved him. Jack expected excellence, and the crew worked to achieve it. He'd snarl insults and spit fury at a man who did his job half-hearted, and then grin and smack him on the back once it was done proper. He hadn't spoken to Finn since the day he pressed her into service, and Finn wasn't anxious to garner his attention. She already had all the work she could weather. 
Finn was scrubbing the poop deck on the second day underway when the door to the captain's quarters opened and Tiberius Creech stepped out into the world to appraise his ship. He was tall and older than she'd expected. Great locks of curly hair cascaded out from under his black tricorn, and his face was hawkish and severe with deep-set eyes and a hooked nose. He was dressed gentlemanly in a red topcoat and white breeches, but his eyes conveyed nothing gentle. He peered across the deck as if searching for a mouse to pounce on. Jack climbed up the steps and greeted him, but received no recourse for his courtesy. Creech continued inspecting the ship and sailors with his gaze. Finn stopped scrubbing for a moment and watched him until his hawkish peering found her looking back. He narrowed one eye at her, and she returned to scrubbing. Who is that? he said. His speech was smoothly metered and menacing. Finn didn't need to look up to know whom he was talking about. New tar, sir. Picked him up in Savannah to replace that no-gooder Tommy, said Jack. Name's Button. I see, said the captain. Then he turned, stalked back into his quarters, and wasn't seen again before the ship saw Philadelphia. Philadelphia.